The Thrive Global Podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. This tendency to deprioritize the self is a cultural and I think public health crisis. And I would never treat a person around me the way I was treating myself. Hello, I'm Arianna Huffington and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast. Each week, we are having candid conversations with top business leaders, celebrities, athletes, and influencers to explore how they go from surviving to thriving, and how you can, too. In Hollywood, a triple threat used to mean someone who could act, sing, and dance. But Sophia Bush has redefined the term. She's an actor, an entrepreneur, and an activist. She's relentless in using the celebrity and influence she has gained in starring roles on shows like One Tree Hill and Chicago PD to push for action on an incredible variety of causes, from equality and access to education to global poverty and the environment. And I absolutely love her Twitter bio. I'm a storyteller, a dog mama, a design nerd, and most importantly, I'm a voter. She's also an early-stage tech investor who looks to bolster innovative companies that add real value to people's lives, including Penpal Schools, Uber, Styleseat, Mark 43, and Things. Above all, she's been a true leader in showing how social media can be used for good, to galvanize and inspire others to act and connect with their world to make it a better place. Welcome, Sophia. So glad to have you join us. And for those who don't know, Sophia is a Greek word, and it means wisdom. So let me start by asking you about failure. I always Mm -hmm. love asking very successful people about their failures, Mm -hmm. because our failures are always hidden. Once you are successful, people never focus on all that happened along the way. Uh, You've been working for over 20 years in Hollywood, an industry that's known for burning people out, for obviously Mm -hmm. canceling shows. How do you deal with both early failures and um, things that don't go the way you wanted them to go after you've been established and successful? Sure. I mean, yeah, I've had my fair share and assume I will continue to have them. I think we have to redefine our relationship with this idea of failure in the first place. Trial and error is a term we're all very used to, and we think it's fine. You learn by trial and error. That's what you do. You know, you try this, you try that. You try on a sweater. You try on four pairs of running shoes before you decide which ones you're going to buy. Yet somehow when we do something that doesn't work, quote unquote, it has this sort of catastrophic feeling for our self-esteem and confidence, and we must be worthless because it didn't work. I think it's such an outsized expectation. I I think about how even, and I think especially for women, when you're in the public eye, for example, and you have a relationship that ends, as most do, oh, this failed, this marriage failed, this couple failed. Well, no, they didn't. They ran their course. You have experiences. And if you are one of the lucky ones, one relationship of all the relationships you've ever been in will work, which means a successful life in the world of love and intimacy comes with a 99% failure rate. (laughs) So I just find the whole thing to be so funny. And you're right. People don't often talk about it. You hear people say, George Clooney had 11 failed pilots before ER, and now he's George Clooney. I'll never forget when I was in college, I booked a pilot 
for an ABC show. It was a show about a family. I was playing the teenage daughter. And it was a really good show. Our show didn't get picked up. And that's just what happens. You make shows. It's incredibly rare to sell a pilot. It's even more rare to get that pilot made. And then only a handful of those go to series. And that's just reality. And I didn't take it personally. And by the following fall season, I was working on One Tree Hill and I did that job for nine years. And over the course of those nine years, there were other things I auditioned for. There were movies I wanted that I didn't get. There's a very famous actress who three different times it came down to she and I for a movie (laughs) and she booked it every time. And I went like, okay, that is what it is. And that's not to say it's easy to lose out on something you want, but I think the the real risk to each of us comes when we take failure or criticism personally mm-hmm. rather than seriously. And have you always known that? Because, or was it harder at the beginning and it got easier? Like now your pilot of surveillance wasn't mm-hmm. picked up. Like mm-hmm. if you compare how you reacted to this yes. compared to how you reacted uh, in the middle of college? I don't think that it's that linear. I don't imagine it like, you know, a line moving upwards to the right-hand corner on a graph. Life is very cyclical. I, you know, if you think about waves, like radio waves, brain waves, I think about that motion of peaks and valleys. And I think depending on how your mental health is, depending on your emotional fitness, your physical fitness, the safety of your environment, that's going to really impact how you feel about something. You know, when you're in an environment of toxic stress, which I've been in, everything feels heightened and more tragic. I wasn't really worried that the first pilot I ever did didn't get picked up. There were some movies I didn't get that I didn't really care and some that I was devastated about. And there's also been plenty that I've booked. And then In the experience of developing surveillance, it's really a mixed bag because we made the highest testing television pilot in a decade. And it tested so high that they thought there was a mistake and they retested it (laughs) multiple times. And this was across race and age and gender and political leanings. And it, it really served everyone. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have a conversation about government service, journalism, activism, and society that would make everyone feel recognized and like we could have a conversation because I don't think we're having conversations. I think we're having screaming matches, even despite the fact that it's the highest testing show and despite the fact that every actor on our show could have had their own show, but they all came to do my show. It was a very robust project and very, very expensive to make. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, television is a business and there is an Excel spreadsheet of a budget. And in being able to fill out a television lineup for a year, there was no way to make all the shows they needed to make to fill out their schedule and make our show and not be losing money. money. It was devastating, of course, but... That's how it goes. And that's so not personal. And I will say how fortunate I feel to have been in the industry for as long as I have to have the relationships that I have. And to now, having done this show that I produced and helped to develop, I have proven myself as a leader on a set and shown the kinds of results I create. And what that meant was that rather than getting an email from an agent, I got a phone call from the president of the network who ran me through why the numbers just aren't going to work, talked to me about how sad he was and a slew of other people, 
at the network who were very vulnerable rather than businessy about it and said, I want to start looking immediately for what the next thing is we can do together. And so I take it also as a success. And I have to think about the reality of my life. You know, all I've been saying for my, the entirety of my career is I really want to just work at home. I'm tired of having to move. I moved to North Carolina for nine years. I moved to Chicago for five years. I pick up and I leave my life and then I'm absent always. And I don't want to do that anymore as an adult. And if I had done this show, I would have had to move to Canada. I would have had to move to another mm -hmm. country. In a way, I think you don't always get what you want, but you do get what you need. I love that because so often I know in my life... When things happened that were devastating at the time, when mm. I look back in retrospect, mm. they were the best thing that could have happened to me. Mm -hmm. Like when a man I was crazy in love with when I lived in London and lived with for seven years wouldn't marry me. I mean, marriage wasn't as important as I wanted to have children. Yes. So I left London and moved to New York because I wanted to put the Atlantic between us. And to start over. And to start over. And that turned out to be the best thing that could possibly have happened to me in terms of my life, my mm. children, my career, everything. But at the time, it was devastating. But for you yes. to be able to have that perspective, that maybe that was like the best thing because you wanted to be at home. You mm -hmm. would have moved to Canada because you cared a lot about the show. Yes. But what your heart and your soul are telling you is this is the time for you to be at home. And what I need as a complete person, not just an employee or a boss, is to have a life that fulfills me and enriches me and that allows me to recharge. And I have learned the hard way that when I am away nine or 10 months out of the year, working 90 to 100 hours a week away from everyone I know and everything I care about, I begin to create a stand-in life rather than live my own life and I've paid my dues I've done it I don't want a stand-in life anymore I think as sad as I am that the world won't see the show because it really is magnificent it's like all right on to the next something's watching out for me right now the mm -hmm. universe has my back and I think it's because I've gotten really clear about what I want what I need and what I'm still learning, I deserve. And I love the I'm still learning, I deserve. Because mm. I think there is that voice that women particularly have. I know I had it very, very strong. I'm better, a little bit better now, which mm. I call the obnoxious roommate living in my uh, head that doubts me, that yeah. judges me. I and, call that the evil uh, stepmother. The evil you know, like the Cinderella <laughs> story? The evil stepmother that's just so abusive to you and tells you you're worthless. We all have one. Yeah, we all and have one. And by the way, one. that's not a dig at stepmothers. I know you're amazing <laughs> human beings who sign up for complicated relationships. But in the fairy tale world, at least, it feels like a good archetype. It is a very good archetype. And it's really something that all of us kind of are struggling with through our lives. Mm -hmm. and. And I know when I can put my obnoxious remate, but now I'm going to also call it my evil stepmother, <laughs> in perspective, sort of life dramatically changes and yes. everything that happens changes. And most important, I think the most exhausting thing in my life has been that voice. Mm. You know, I can work really hard and love it, but when that voice starts, that's why avoiding these energy leaks Yes. It's so key in life. You talked about recharging. Mm -hmm. And part of recharging is what's happening in our head. Yes, absolutely. 
So how do you find, uh, what are the best ways for you to recharge? Have you identified them? I'm learning because, you know, it's interesting. I started working on my first television show at 21, and the pace of that industry is not built to take care of you. It really beats up on people and their bodies. I think in a way, I've also learned in hindsight that I tend to learn lessons the hard way. I have to really repeat patterns until they become glaringly obvious to me. It really wasn't until my body started to actually fail because I was in such an environment of consistent toxic stress. I started suffering from pretty aggressive chronic fatigue and didn't know what to do because I've always been a pretty healthy person. When I quit my job in Chicago, I went to see a slew of really interesting doctors in L.A. to run some tests and, you know, get a bunch of opinions. I'd also never had the time to do that. You know, as an actor, you get a physical once a year and that's sort of it. You can't plan when you go to the dentist. It's complicated to make it into any sort of healthcare professional who works on a normal scheduling system. So... I went and I saw all of these really interesting doctors and integrative medicine doctors and Eastern doctors and Western doctors. And I got some test results back and discovered that I was in adrenal failure. From such heightened stress levels and exhaustion, my body was literally shutting down. And that was a wake-up call for me because I'm a young woman and, and luckily adrenal failure didn't lead to stress on my heart and a heart attack or anything like that. But what if I'd been 55, not 35? What would this have looked like? I started to really think about what fills me, what gives me energy, and also how much my wanting to do everything that fills me and gives me energy because I've always been away can be dangerous because I'll push myself too hard. And I started to do a few things. I changed my schedule because, you know, I have meetings and meetings with writers and producers and scripts to read and teams to see and things to do every day. You know how it is. It's very busy even when no one knows what you're doing. And I changed the hours that I was willing to take meetings. And I said, I'm not doing any more meetings at 9 in the morning. I'll start meetings at 1030 because I need to sleep. I need to get up and go for a walk. Maybe I just need to like space out and make a coffee. I can't be busy every single second of every single day and be scheduled within five minute increments of every day. I can't do it and feel sustained. The brain, especially the creative brain, needs to be bored. Mm -hmm. And what I also started doing was every third or fourth day, I would say, let's say a Thursday. I'd say, okay, on Thursdays, I'll start meetings at nine. But I want one to two thirty open in the afternoon. So that if I need to go home and take a 30-minute nap, I can do that. Having control of my schedule, I'm aware of how privileged that is and how privileged that sounds because I had never had that. My entire life, I was on someone else's schedule. Someone would tell me where to be, where to report, what to wear, what to say. And you're at the full mercy of that, as so many people are. I really thought, okay, whatever's happening now, I, I finally have this time now. I have to figure out what to do with it. And it has made me different even when my schedule is not my own even for the two Mm -hmm. months that we were in pre-production and shooting on surveillance I prioritized eight hours of sleep a night I would go home early even if there was a dinner and I'm with some of my favorite people those people became my family I literally see them all of the time now and still and I would say like guys I gotta go I love you I gotta go or on a Saturday 
if we'd stayed up late on Friday night after work, even if I wasn't asleep, I would stay in bed and keep myself horizontal to rest. I took my phone out of my bedroom. I bought an alarm clock that I really like, and I plug in the phone in my bathroom. So I give myself that last moment. Like, the last time I'm allowed to look at my phone is when I'm brushing my teeth. If I need to be, if I'm like, something's happening, or I'm talking to a friend or whatever. But I put it down, and then I go in the other room. And I don't wake up to it. Because my friend Jay Shetty talks about how if you wake up to your phone, you are literally opening your eyes and then opening your door to 100 people to come in the room with you, you would never do that. It's insane. So I always think about him when I'm slipping and I like walk into my bedroom with my phone. I go, oh my God, no, 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 no. 100 people do not get to be in here. I don't have a TV in my bedroom for the same reason. It's a bed and books and that's it. Those things have been very helpful, but it isn't easy. There are some days when I don't get enough sleep quite a few still. I'm a human, you know, I'm not perfect, but I feel it and I can tell. And I've gotten better at being less attached to plans and more present to feelings. So even last night, I had a huge day here running around doing so many interviews and it's amazing, but overstimulating and exciting. And I got home and I was exhausted and I was meant to go to a friend's comedy show and then go to dinner. And I just said, My body hurts. I can't. And rather than feeling guilty and guilting myself into going, I sent some text messages and said, I love you guys. I oversubscribed today and I really need a night to rest. And next time I'm here, I will make sure to be at the show and we'll do this dinner. And I love everybody. And the responses from people who I care about are, none of us have any idea how you do so much shit in a day. And good, you need to nap. Like, please go to bed now. You know, don't read the news for the next two hours. Go to bed now. And in loving myself, I also gave space to people who I love to love me back. And also to love themselves Mm. because you give them permission next time they're Mm -hmm. in that place Mm -hmm. to also uh, put their own oxygen mask on first as they tell us on airplanes. Yes. I think what you said now shows people a way to manage our lives, even when we're on somebody else's schedule. Mm -hmm. And that for me is so key. Mm. And one barometer for me is joy. Mm. Like, am I getting joy out of what I'm doing? When I stop getting joy, I know I'm off. Yes. I need to course correct. So what gives you joy? What makes you smile? Activism brings me joy because for me, finding community... And prioritizing truth in the midst of crisis or complication feels like an act of resistance. Some people will say, well, doesn't it make you stressed out? And I say, no, no, I'd be so much more stressed out if I were just watching this play out in real time and not doing anything about it. It's the doing that reminds me that we're alive. My community brings me joy. Spending time with friends, having deep conversations. You know, my plan, I... I didn't go out last night and two of my friends are here in New York with me and we're all staying together. And they were so relieved that I didn't want to go anywhere. (laughs) And we ordered takeout and we opened a bottle of wine and we were all like, we're going to go to bed at 10. And we were up in the kitchen until 1.30 in the morning just talking Mm. about life and therapy and space time and quantum physics. And I mean, we got deep last night and that is my favorite kind of night 
and I think that I've realized that everything, every success, every failure, every protest march and speech I've ever given and curiosity I've explored and book I've ever read has led me to this place where I'm leaning into what comes to me and those conversations come to me and the writing comes to me and the activism comes to me. This is why I'm finally going to launch my podcast. And I can't tell you how much joy it brings me to sit and dive into complexity and curiosity with human beings that I respect and human beings that I agree with and human beings that I don't agree with at all and human beings that I'm just inquisitive about. It has been the fulfillment of so many things and I've realized as I sit to do this and people like Gloria Steinem and Secretary Clinton tell me you're excellently inquisitive and great at asking questions and I go this is why I got a journalism degree. I didn't know but now I know and it's pure joy. It's like a love letter to the world and it is also such an exercise in my favorite parts of myself. I think I had to get over this fear that why would this be interesting? Who's going to care? I went on a couple of great podcasts last year and was sent the data from the producers who said, you have to have your own podcast. And I finally went, oh, I guess I am allowed to step into that. I'm ready to step into that. And over the years, as you know, when you work in media, everything you ever say is on the internet. And for some reason, this one sentence that I said years ago, I think I said it because I needed to hear it, has resonated with people. There's thousands and thousands of images of it on Pinterest and artwork, and it's everywhere. And I was really just acknowledging the both and, and I said, you are allowed to be both a masterpiece and a work in progress mm. simultaneously. Be proud of where you are. Also set goals. Don't let your goals distract you from the present and don't get so comfortable in the present that you don't look ahead kind of thing. And that you, you know, lose maybe the ability to be self-critical or examining. But I realize that I do that too, where I look at the world, I look at Instagram and I think everyone else has it all figured out. But everybody I talk to says, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I said, okay, I want to call this podcast Work in Progress. Mm. And I want to interview these people who I look at as masterpieces, as examples, as mentors, as friends, as creative geniuses, and talk to them about how they got where they are, but also what they're still trying to figure out. And it's personal, it's professional, it's political. Sometimes it's very silly. Sometimes it's really surprisingly emotional. It's just become a really beautiful space to have the conversations that I think we're all really craving right now. That is such a profound truth. And accepting that sort of changes mm -hmm. how we live our lives. And I personally can't wait Thank to you. listen to Work in Progress. <laughs> and so today... I spoke to someone I adore and I'm here speaking to you and, and that's my day. And it's such a more gentle and fulfilling experience. And I have the runway because I didn't get what I thought I wanted, but I'm getting exactly what I needed mm. and it's making me realize what I really want. I love the metaphor of the runway because I find what stresses us so much is when we live our lives breathlessly and there is no space between one thing and the other and mm -hmm. there is no runway in front mm -hmm. of us. So mm -hmm. I will 
remember that image of the runway. And I did that. I lived so jammed for so long that I would realize I didn't remember things. I just wouldn't remember. Someone would say, what did you do on Sunday? And I literally couldn't recall. And I have a pretty freaky memory. My friends will say to me, how do you remember that? Why do you know that? How do you remember this random fact about the oil rig on the Deepwater Horizon and the blind shear ram and the, that failed in the pressure testing? Like, it's bizarre. And I realized I couldn't remember my own life. And that was from being exhausted. That was from having no space to be bored. That was from being underslept, undernourished. The alarm bells were blaring. But there was so much to do that it was like I was standing looking forward while the house was burning down behind me. And when I finally turned around, I thought, oh, I've got to clear this plot of land and rebuild something. And I have to be so much more intentional about how I build it. So you do realize that you are describing a collective epidemic, a collective delusion that that's what life is supposed to be. You mm -hmm. know, this kind of living in a fight or flight mode. Mm jamming everything, power mm. through exhaustion. We'll sleep when we're dead. We'll sleep when we're I'm dead. I'm like, if you don't sleep, you're going to die. <laughs> why, exactly. why are we you, glorifying this? What, was there a moment when you realized the importance of sleep, of recharging, of refueling? Was there like a specific moment? Yeah, I mean, really learning that my actual physical body was beginning to break the chronic down. chronic fatigue moment. Yeah, like how long being ago, an adrenal failure is yes. not, a, it's not no. a light thing. Well, how long ago was that? That's a little over two years ago now. So very recently. Uh-huh. I knew my adrenals were off. I knew my hormones were out of whack from stress. I knew these things, and I didn't take them seriously enough. I would go, yeah, but I'm busy, or oh, but what am I supposed to do? I have this job. I sort of looked at them as inconveniences rather than warning signs. And things that you could power through because you're a superwoman. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the minute, if you say to me, like, you need to do less, I'm like, <laughs> watch me. If someone makes a situation untenable or uncomfortable for me, I'm like, oh, you think that you can intimidate me and that this will be fun. I do. I have a warrior spirit and I will Joan of Arc a situation really fast and just power through the mess and lead. But what I realized finally was that I don't have to. Who wants to live like they're at war every day? Or when you have to or when you do, can we take time to refuel? Yes. That's the other thing. There yes. will be times when because of what you desperately care about. Yes or something that's happening in your life, you have to do that. Yeah, and thank you for clarifying that. It's really important. It's not like we can all just stop. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Crest 3D White. And we are back with the Thrive Global podcast. Let's rejoin the conversation. You know, it took me four years of this situation to call stop. So I did this day in and day out trying to make it work for nearly half a decade. And so I have ultimate sympathy for how hard it can be to extricate yourself from that kind of situation 
And then I think it's really important to figure out how to change your experience of the situation. What do you do at home? How do you practice moments of self-care? Can you download, you know, a good meditation app and meditate for five minutes every morning? Five minutes can change your life. And I had to realize that this tendency to deprioritize the self is a cultural and I think public health mm-hmm. crisis. And I would never treat a person around me the way I was treating myself. I would never ignore a person around me the way I was ignoring myself. I would never put a person around me in a state of unhealthiness the way I was with myself. And I started to think about what she needs. I think about my body as her, as the her I'm in relationship to. And I'm not going to disrespect her. Beautiful. When she is screaming for my attention because she is sick or uncomfortable or doesn't feel safe somewhere, I'm not going to ignore her. And the minute I personalized myself, my physical self, as another person in my community, I became her biggest advocate. That is amazing. That is such a, a gift that you can give to all the young women you are working with. I know mm-hmm. this is a big passion of yours. Mm-hmm. Your project with young girls. Have you talked to them about that? I talk to a lot of young women, whether I speak at schools or colleges or even just share. I try to share a lot of this online with my community. I really do try to show up in those digital spaces, not as an entertainer or as some aspirational figure. I show up as myself Mm -hmm. and I try to have really frank conversations and share what's going on and talk about lessons and talk about struggles. And I find it really just to be a much healthier way to interact with the digital world. And I know that it's working from the feedback I get. And I also can feel how much it's working for me in what I get out of it too. And Being also, honest is refreshing. Yes, but also you are helping so many young women who don't yet have their foundation mm-hmm. in place to recognize the need to set boundaries and to nourish themselves. I Mm. think given the mental health crisis, the Mm. skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. among young girls especially, this Mm. is such a great service. Oh, yeah. I love talking about therapy. I love talking about meditation. I love saying, yeah, I'm doing this 40 days of chanting for myself. I downloaded this great app, actually, at the recommendation of my doctor. I finally found the perfect GP who's got every degree but also studied Eastern medicine. And he and I just go ham on health and metaphysics. <laughs> and it's so fun. And I never thought I would feel that way about a doctor. And now I'm thinking about how we can sort of rebuild the entire medical industry to make everybody feel this way. But that's a separate tangent. He recommended this app to me called Brain FM. Yes, I love it. I'm obsessed. So there's five or six categories in it, you know, focus, recharge, which is for a nap, meditate, and the sleep thing. And what I find so interesting about it is when I open the sleep section and it plays this music while you sleep that's designed to get your brain into a theta state so you really have Go depressed. Deep. The options on the sleep app are six, seven, or eight hours. And even being given the choice, when I look at it, I think if I can only hit seven, I'm like, "Mm, you should be hitting eight. Tomorrow, go to bed earlier. And weirdly, it's making me take better care of myself Mm. because I realize that the choice is mine. 
So when did you actually specifically understand the importance of sleep? Because having been a sleep evangelist for <laughs> many mm -hmm. years, I know it's been hard for many people to acknowledge to themselves that this mm -hmm. is not negotiable. Yeah. Well, I'm so curious, too, when that began to change because, you know, we used to work from nine to five. And now everyone's expected to work from eight to eight or eight to ten. And then I beyond mean, the phone. Beyond. It's <laughs> nuts. I'm like, huh, there's really been a sort of societal shift to glorify exhaustion, which really is just so that people who run very large companies can overwork their employees half to death. I think for me, because, you know, a short day on a set is a 12-hour day, which means you're at work for 14 hours, which means inclusive of travel time, it's a 15-hour day. When you have a long day, which is an 18-hour day, you're having a 20 to a 21-hour day. And... That's the industry I grew up in. And that's just, quote, how it is. And everyone does it, so it must be okay. When I started to go through these sort of cycles of these crazy work weeks, and then on a Saturday I'd sleep for 10 or 12 hours and then do it all again, I wasn't really conscious of how dangerous that was. And I remember... A friend of mine in my late 20s was struggling, really went into a pretty gnarly bout of depression. And when we were talking about what that looked like, one of the indicators that she was explaining to me that her doctor was highlighting is that sometimes when you're really in the throes of that sort of mental health state and you're depressed, you're not sleeping, but then you'll sleep for 10, 12, 13 yes. hours and not be able to get out of bed. And I started to go, oh, I'm creating a pattern and a routine that is putting my brain into a depressive state. I'm living in a way that doctors would say is bad for a person, would say is, is an indicator that your mental health needs fortifying. Can you sleep and not sleep your way into being depressed? I got really curious mm -hmm. about it and still felt kind of at the mercy of my job got to a point when I was working in Chicago where I could fall asleep sitting up because I was just so tired. I could literally fall asleep sitting in a chair. If there were 10 minutes where they were moving cameras, I'd pass out. And I thought, okay, this is not normal. <laughs> like people started calling me a narcoleptic to tease me. And I was like, yeah, this might be an indicator that I need to re-examine my relationship with sleeping. So I started taking naps and then it was really in the space of not having to be on a set every day where I, you know, I'm in production and development where those meetings are a little more humanely timed, where I started to think, okay, I'm going to start experimenting with real sleep and see what happens. And I think you've done such a great job with your work here at Thrive and the books that you've written about entering sleep into the cultural consciousness And doctors are so relieved because they're going, hello, we know about this. We know what the brain needs. Then, you know, the TED Talk that just came out about sleep. Yes. Oh, Amazing. I watched it with such rapt attention and then forwarded it to everyone that I know. It's really important for us to have those things highlighted. Sleep is as important as water, mm -hmm. as food. Our brains cannot exist without it. 
Yes, how essential it is for the brain. We're mm-hmm. just beginning to understand now. Mm-hmm. And I think your uh, speaking about it is so important. I want more and more sort of younger people to speak about it and yeah. to make the connection both to health and to performance mm-hmm. and to creativity mm-hmm. and to mental health. Mm-hmm. And also... The connection to metaphysics is interesting. You mentioned metaphysics, and that's been a big passion of mine. I wrote a book which sold 2,000 copies, so you won't have heard of it, but I'll send it <laughs> to you, called The Fourth Instinct. And mm. I really believe that we all have these three instincts that we all know and talk about, mm-hmm. you know, survival, sex, and power, status, however you define it, you know, mm. our place in the world. But I also feel we have a fourth instinct, which is the instinct for transcendence, for meaning, mm. for understanding our place in the universe. Why are we here? What mm-hmm. is death? You know, all these big questions. I think we all have that instinct and longing in us, but most of the time we don't acknowledge it or mm. don't give it any time to have mm. these cosmic conversations you had uh, last night at the kitchen table mm. until one thirty in the morning. So I wonder how that longing was awakened in you. Were you brought up in a spiritual environment at all? Any religious upbringing? So I think for me it came from, I've been using the phrase a lot in the last couple of months, the privilege of exposure. I really do believe that being exposed to options is a privilege. My mother grew up Italian Catholic. My father grew up in Canada. I believe his parents were Lutheran or something, but in the way that we're analyzing now how a lot of people are advocating for cruelty based on the Bible, that it's wildly hypocritical. And my dad saw things with his family And their claims to be religious, but not acting religious, you know, it's like Jesus would have been hanging out with the prostitutes and he would have been walking women into Planned Parenthood and and he would have been advocating for the refugees at the border. He wouldn't be in a mega church driving a Rolls Royce. My dad had that realization really early. So he's agnostic. Our family in New York is very Italian Catholic. And then the rest of my extended family in California, my aunt and uncle and every other important person to me there is Jewish. And so I grew up with a mom who loves decorating for Christmas more than anything and a dad who's like, cool, whatever, I'll grill something uh, <laughs> as the contribution. And then we would do Christmas at my house and Hanukkah at my aunt and uncle's house. And I would always go to temple and I loved the spiritual and I loved the gathering that happened on holidays with family and food, the breaking of bread, the exchange of laughter, the storytelling Those things feel very sacred to me. And as a child growing up in California, I spent so much time in nature. I became an environmental advocate in elementary school, learning about the world and about nature and coming up on truths like the Fibonacci sequence, seeing that there are these shapes in flowers and seashells. It's impossible to believe there's not some magic at work in the universe, But I was given the option to see how so many cultures interpret it. That made me go, oh, a lot of people believe in something greater. I see something greater everywhere. It always felt like a greater sense of wonder that the universe has magic in it, that it's everywhere if you look. 
being lucky enough to experience religions and see that essentially all that anyone was saying was love, be good, and take care of people, I thought, okay, that I can get on board with. I got very fascinated with the Amazon and indigenous and tribal culture as a kid because learning about the environment took me into Mm -hmm. the Amazon rainforest, which took me into indigenous people. And then I became, I remember around 12, I started studying a lot of Eastern philosophy. So I read the Rig Vedas and the Upanishads and the Tao Te Ching. And then I think around 16, I started studying Islam and took a year of Islamic studies and read the Quran and have been lucky enough to be welcomed into many mosques in the Middle East and pray there and pray at the Wailing Wall in Israel and bathe in the Dead Sea, both in Israel and Jordan and sit in on indigenous ceremony and be invited into sweat lodges. And I am so deeply awed at the way the human mind across cultures tries to make sense of magic, tries to make sense of spirituality, tries to make sense of, to your point, God to me is transcendence. God to me is oneness. God to me is you and I and everything in this room is made of atoms and we are literally all the same. I think that the more that we've lost the connection to that reality in the earth and that reality all around us and that reality in each other, the more that industry has bastardized mysticism and turned it into hoarded power and profiteering, the more afraid I am. I think about the relationship that all over the world indigenous cultures have to the land. I think about plant medicine and what it has offered to humanity for centuries, how it lets us see the sacredness in the world, when you learn at the feet of shamans who explain how these things are connected and who've known for thousands of years what Western culture is just catching up to now, it feels so obvious to me. So yes, I'm deeply, deeply spiritual, but I worry about the fractionalization of the human condition and global existence based on my book is better than your book. It feels so crazy to me that we're still having those conversations. Well, it's so small and petty compared mm-hmm. to the sort of fundamental principles that, as you said, all religions really share. Mm-hmm. And that they do come down to oneness and love. And how do we manifest them in our lives? But I, I'm excited by the way this longing for a spiritual dimension to our lives is being reawakened. Me too. In a healthier and all-inclusive way. Me too. And I hope there's more of that. I hope we allow for more curiosity with each other because, again, what a privilege that I grew up in a family Mm. where my parents said, yeah, if you think that's cool, read more, learn more, look more into that. They never said to me when I brought home translations of Sanskrit texts, why are you reading that? They never did that. And I'm so lucky 
to have had that. I'm lucky to have been the daughter of, in my mother, a first-generation American, and in my father, an immigrant. I helped my dad study for his United States citizenship test. I made flashcards. (laughs) I know what it means to want to be here and to love this country and to have come here to make it the best it can be, to make the best life, to provide for your family. It makes it feel so clear when I look at any other person here. This is ours. There is nowhere for someone to go back to. You know, what's happening in the current debate is so ugly and racist and nationalistic. And I really hope that in this what seems to be great kind of cosmic battle that we're having between evolutionary transcendence and kindness and global community, because we are a human race, I really hope that our side who says every child is my child and every man is my brother and every woman is my sister, I really hope that we beat the bad guys who are saying the things they're saying on the news right now. I think humanity deserves it. Well, we clearly have a very clear choice. Mm -hmm. And I like your term, a cosmic battle. It feels like that to me. The more clear we are about it, I think, the more successful we'll be, especially Mm -hmm. if we don't waste too much time just being outraged instead Mm -hmm. of acting. I love what you said right at the beginning, that uh, living in a perpetual state of outrage and just texting your friends saying, can you believe that? It's just such a waste of energy. Uh, I was just studying the civil rights movement again, and, you know, they were so disciplined. They never wasted time just being aimlessly outraged. When you say studying the movement, what does that look like for you? For for someone like you with a brain like yours, how do you study something like that? I just love to, you know, I remember how it started for me is when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was thrown out of the restaurant. I just instinctively felt this is such a waste of energy. I can understand the motivation, you know, hearing this woman lying every day. Yeah. But it's basically like it achieved nothing except being lectured for two weeks by Fox on civility. And so I went back (laughs) to the principles of Mm. the civil rights movement leaders, and they were unbelievably disciplined. It was really all about action and outcomes Mm. and results. I find this is just an amazing model for us to follow because really we just want to be effective. We don't want just to vent. Mm. I mean, we all need a little venting, but not to the point where it sort of takes us over. Yeah, venting has to be followed with action. Otherwise, you're just poisoning yourself. Yes. But it's interesting. I And I do see your point, but I'm also, I was firmly on board with her being thrown out of that restaurant. I get the feeling. <laughs> I was like, you know what? You, you can refuse the right. I think that's fair. But my point is that if you look back, did it move us forward in this cosmic battle that you described? Yeah. Did we gain any points? I understand that. But I think that what's hard is that when we think about moving forward, we're not on the plane of sanity anymore. You and I are talking about moving forward in the evolution of a movement. We're talking about the pen being mightier than the sword. And the other side has brought an Uzi to the sword fight. It's so crazy and unevenly weighted. And we're meant to have a space that hopefully challenges us to finally fulfill the ideals that the country was founded on that we have often failed to meet. We're still working to get to the best iteration of what real freedom 
means. And what that perfect union is. Yes, and to also acknowledge where we've come from and the cruelty that that idea of a perfect union stomped under its feet. It's really complex and we must acknowledge it. And I think we must continue to strive to make the good words true because the harm caused in getting there deserves us doing it right eventually, goddammit, you know? And to see this now, a president of the United States taking cues from Hitler and Mussolini, it's unfathomable to me. You know, my my mother and I were talking about this yesterday because my mother's mother, my grandmother, came to New York through Ellis Island. She came on a boat from Italy. And my mother grew up hearing her grandma, my great-grandma, talk about what it was like to live there, what it was like to live under that man, how terrifying it was, how dark, how bleak, the hopelessness that came from that kind of dictatorial rule and just cruelty and lack of regard for human beings. And it's astonishing, of course, to me, but it is astonishing to my mother who was raised hearing those stories that this is America today. And what I love is when we recognize the danger and it is very real, Mm. that's when I feel we are even more committed to making sure our energy goes into the battle in the best Mm. possible way. I sure hope so. That, I think, is what will ensure success. It's a slight distinction, but I have so many friends who literally go to bed completely exhausted at the Mm. end of the day because of how they take in what has been happening and they Mm. haven't done anything to advance the battle. Interesting. So that's really what I'm talking about. You know, if we look back at how we respond to what is happening, I will respond. I mean, you listen. Well, that's why we started I Am a Voter. You are doing I'm a Voter campaign. That is something real. That is an absolute, that can totally dramatically change the election. Yes. And for us, starting I Am a Voter, obviously I'm very clear about what I believe in and what my personal politics are, but we built I Am a Voter as a team to be a nonpartisan civic engagement encouragement group to get people and especially young people and millennials out there voting. And we have gotten artists to turn their tours into voter registration events. We have done incredible amounts of media and encouragement. We do so much work where we just say, listen, whether we all agree or not, the only way we change the world is by showing up. This is the front line. And to remind people that everything that you are, your career, your family, whatever, whatever your descriptors for yourself are, voter is the most important one if you're lucky enough to live in this country. And if we change that reality, if we increase the numbers of people who show up Mm -hmm. in 2020, that's going to have such a huge impact. It's so sad to look at the numbers. Yeah, I really hope so. And to see the difference it would make. So why don't we go from metaphysics and politics to love and relationships. And that's probably a good place to end this amazing conversation. Mm, What have you learned about what makes a good relationship? I think that the greatest lesson for me, and again, you know, I learned the hard way. I've repeated certain patterns where I realize, oh, this is an archetype of that. 
that thing that happened in my 20s that I'm trying to work out. I'm still trying to work it out in real time. Or, you know, this aspect of that relationship there that was so beautiful and and wonderful. I'm looking to find that. Okay, but that is what it is. That was what it was. So I think on, on the positives and the negatives that we all have from our intimate relationships, the biggest difference to me in this space of real pause and awareness is a taking a lot of time to be by myself was incredibly important because I had to I really had to cultivate a relationship with me Mm. and I understand that relationships are complicated for men as well I'm not even getting into you know non-heteronormative relationships because look those are the relationships I experienced but as a woman the particular set of complications for me and I think for a lot of us are that we have been taught to find a partner for completion and no one's really bothered to talk to us about how to complete ourselves. My greatest lesson in the ways I have loved and been loved so beautifully and in the ways that I have been loved, which I had to realize were more about being possessed, that were very toxic and very dangerous. The sort of sum total of all those parts is the realization for me that moving forward, a relationship is no longer about me and my partner being in relationship. It is about me, my partner. So it's me, you, and then us. And us is a separate thing. Us is the Holy Trinity. It is the house that my partner and I build together. And we have to select what every major support beam in the house is, communication, vulnerability, adventure, intimacy, whatever those pillars are for myself and my partner that go into the us. It is a space that we come to together and have permission to leave, to go back to me, to go back to you, to recharge and return. I think that the greatest disservice we have been done in relationship is that we expect to tether to another person and have that feel okay. And that's a two-man tug-of-war. Tug-of-war is a competition, and it's literally named after war. It doesn't work out great for people. If we change the shape, if we think about rather than a line, if we think about this triangle, and I am always me and you are always you, and then us is the thing we build— Your home is only as beautiful as you make it. It is only as warm as the energy you put into it. When you build into an us, you build your place of worship with someone. And that, to me, feels like the most important thing I have learned about what relationships look like and is changing completely and so beautifully the course of where that part of my life is going. So beautiful. And are you impatient to build this house with someone? No. The only times I've been impatient or been convinced to, you know, this person like is your best friend and loves you, like give it a shot. When you have to be convinced to give something a shot, when you have to be pressured into staying or whatever, those are the side effects of impatience. Those are the side effects of like, well, I should have it figured out. I don't believe in any of that anymore. In the space, with the empty runway, with not being scheduled within five minutes of every day, I've had the space to contemplate and to realize what 
is true, at least for me, versus what I've been told or subconsciously pressured into in the past. It feels so new and so clear. I'm like, bring it on when you bring it on. (laughs) Every single stage, there's no rush, there's no deadline. And I've always been pretty type A, very organized, very successful, standard overachiever, you know, society pressure, BS, blah, blah. And it's just gone. And it feels like such a relief. And what's coming into my life now in this space, in this energy is so amazing. I'm like, I didn't get here a moment too soon or a moment too late. I'm just grateful I'm here. And do you want uh, that house that you built together to have children in it? Mm-hmm. For sure. I can't wait to meet them. I can't wait to meet them either. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sophia. Thank you. Uh, this was really inspiring and moving. I can't wait to watch your journey unfold. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for listening today. We hope you heard something that inspires and empowers you. Be sure to follow the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at thriveglobal.com or reach out on social media using the hashtag ThrivePodcast. Tell us who you'd like to hear from and what your favorite micro steps are. Until next time, be well and thrive. This podcast is a production of Thrive Global and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Ariana Huffington. Thrive Global is produced by Sandy Smolens and mixed by Matt Noble at Audiation Studios in Bronxville, New York. Thank you to Lindsay Benoit O'Connell for booking and wrangling our wonderful guests and for providing editorial oversight. Derek Clement is our engineer. And special thanks to Nikki Itor and Kari Lieberman. See you next week.